The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up? Welcome back. Here we are for episode 183. Featuring is Gregory Zuckerman, a writer at the Wall Street Journal and the author of several books. His latest release being The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. And that is the very reason why he's here today. For anyone unfamiliar, Jim Simons is the brilliant-minded mathematician who founded hedge fund Renaissance Technologies. Using quantitative models and with billions in AUM, Renaissance has averaged annualized returns of net 39% since 1988. These returns only become more spectacular once you actually discover that Renaissance investors pay a management and performance fee of 5 and 44, therefore bringing the gross annualized returns to 66%. Due to the fund's superior performance today, Jim has an estimated net worth of $23 billion. Greg describes him as being the greatest moneymaker in modern financial history. Although journalists have previously covered the rise of Renaissance for the longest time, much of it was still shrouded with mystery. But by gaining remarkable access to Jim and also many of the people around him, Greg has been able to now tell the full story in print with detail and accuracy. If you'd like to pick up a copy of The Man Who Solved the Market, it is available now. Just make your way to chatwithtraders.com slash Simons, which will take you straight to Amazon. Now, I know Greg has been doing a bit of media lately as the book has just come out. He's done several other podcasts and he's been featured in many online publications and deservedly so. But fingers crossed you'll hear something new during our chat about Jim and how he reached the pinnacle of trading success, hopefully. I'm also aware that the audio is a bit scratchy at times. Sorry about this, uh, though I'm sure you will manage just fine. And that is that. Let's jump across to the interview. Here is Gregory Zuckerman. And probably a good place to start this conversation is, why did you actually want to write a book about Jim? So I've been at the Wall Street Journal 23 years. I've written a few books and have uh, a range of interests, but 
the one story that I always wanted to do, the one story that hadn't been written was how Jim Simons became the greatest investor slash trader in history. And part of the reason I wanted to do this project is because I knew it was going to be a big challenge. I had approached Simons over the years at least once, and he didn't have any interest in sitting down with me. Sort of, if you're a financial reporter, financial writer, it's sort of the great white whale. This is the one you wanted to capture. So I, for whatever reason, thought this was the time to write it. And, and frankly, he's getting older and a lot of his colleagues are getting older. And if it wasn't now, it wasn't going to be done in five, 10 years. I don't think anyone could write this story. So now was the time. I just imagine it being such a, such a huge undertaking because he's renowned for the, his secrecy and the, the whole fund is renowned for its secrecy. Um, I just imagine it would have been really ambitious setting out to take this on. Yeah, so I agreed to do it, and I got an advance. As a writer, you get a, a book advance. And most writers, 99% of them, go and cash their check. Um, we don't exactly have a lucrative profession, so you have a sizable check, you cash it. But I had mine on my desk in my uh, downstairs office in suburban New Jersey for months, uh, and I wouldn't cash it because I wanted the... Uh, ability to return it because I wasn't sure I could pull this thing off. And eventually the accounting department of uh, Random House, Penguin Random House, the, the accountants were, were kind of like, well, what's going on with that? Well, we got a discrepancy here. <laughs> this cash, this check isn't cashed and that's pretty unusual. And they came to me and I was like, yeah, I'm not sure I can do this. So I, I did get comfortable. I finally got in touch with people who would talk, but for months, uh, I was concerned that I wouldn't get enough for this book. And then I broke through. So tell me about that, because I know this is one of the things you highlighted in the, the beginning of your book, how reluctant and how, I guess in some ways it was surprising how, to the extent of how reluctant people close to Jim and his colleagues, etc., how hesitant they were to actually speak with you. Well, I wasn't surprised, but it was quite difficult. This is the most secretive firm the financial industry has ever seen, has ever dealt with. They aren't from the industry. They're not people that um, went, came from other firms. They're generally speaking academics. They work there, make a lot of money, and then go back into academia. And they generally don't have any incentive to talk. And they also are bound by pretty, pretty sophisticated non-disclosure agreements. And beyond that, they all love and respect Jim Simons, and Jim Simons doesn't want anyone speaking. As I mentioned in the book, I had interviews scheduled with some of Simons' competitors, and these are billionaires in their own right often, and people work for them, etc. But keep in mind, these are rivals. These are what should be enemies, competitors. And on the eve of those meetings, I was told, so, sorry, Greg, I have to cancel my the meeting with you. I can't talk to you because Jim asked me not to talk to you. And which is, again, pretty curious, given that they're competitors. Why should they care that Jim Simons doesn't want them to talk? But people who work for him, people who used to work for him, people who even compete with him, 
don't want to get on his bad side. And part of it is because they have respect for him. Part of it is they fear him a little bit. This is the greatest trader in history. He's got a powerful firm. You kind of don't want to get on his bad side. So for all those reasons, right from the beginning, I was told, don't waste your time on this book. Uh, but but, but I, I was lucky enough to get some people who did talk to me and their stories were just compelling. It was a lot of drama early on in the, in the firm's uh, history. And I figured, and I knew Simon himself had gone through a lot even before he started Renaissance, even before he started Renaissance, you could write a book about that period, quite honestly, I, and people will read it in my book. So um, I, I, I did have this breakthrough where I got enough people to talk early on that it gave me, uh, it encouraged me, it gave me hope. I wasn't sure I could get others to talk, but at least I had some hope. And how did you get the opportunity to actually speak with Jim himself? So eventually, I think Simon's realized that wasn't going away. I spoke to people he grew up with. I spoke to people he was colleagues with, people he was uh, in school with, family members. Um, at one point, when I did get to speak to him, I showed him a picture, and he didn't really recognize the photo on my phone. It was one of the homes he, he lived in growing up. So I think he got the message that I wasn't going away, and also that I was serious about it, and I wanted to tell the story accurately. And I made it clear that, you know, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it and probably may not take it as seriously. But for me, I'm pretty obsessive, maybe not to the level of, of the mathematicians I dealt with. And I did um, recognize a new brand of, of, of character when, when dealing with these people. They're, they are a different breed where, I don't know, I would share a paragraph or two that I've written with, with a mathematician and they would get all upset. Great, you can't write this. How do you write this? What kind of research do you do? Pretty critical stuff. And at first, I was pretty insulted. You know, I've been doing this for a while. I didn't think it was all wrong. And then we dig into it, and basically, 5% of what I wrote was inaccurate. And it was inaccurate and it needed to be changed. But that's kind of why I sent it to them so we could, um, we could discuss it and see what was wrong. So, they are a different breed. They are obsessive about details and accuracy, even more so than I am. But, um, you know, you, you learn to deal with that. And I think Jim realized I take it seriously. I wanted it to be accurate and not be frivolous. And so he eventually decided to talk. Though I do need to be clear, he didn't address things he didn't want to address. He didn't give me secrets. And I said to him, Jim, you can lay out your best algorithms in front of me. I'm not going to understand them. Uh, but nonetheless, he, he didn't want to do that. So he was very clear about what he did and what didn't want to speak with. But he gave me enough. He talked a lot about his early period and his evolution as an investor and as a person. He talked a lot about his uh, later periods of his life. And I got enough about how uh, they became what they are, how, why Renaissance is the greatest investment power that the financial industry has ever seen, how Jim Simons made $23 billion. And why they've got returns of 66% a year uh, for the, since 1988. How many times did you get to speak with them? Was it just a once-off or were there a couple times? So we end up speaking uh, in person about five or six times. And I'd say each time was about an hour and a half or so. So I got enough uh, smoke 
um, I breathed enough smoke from his cigarettes to uh, qualify <laughs> for having uh, having uh, interviewed him, and and uh, it was it was a it was a privilege because he's a he's a fascinating character. He's not a perfect individual. He's made mistakes. Some people can hold various things against him, but net net, uh, pretty impressive, and he's done a lot both for in the investing world, obviously, but society at large. That's also quite impressive that you got. Uh, that much time with him as well. That's uh, that's a little bit surprising, actually. I can be persistent. And <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going away. He he could tell, and, and maybe you know, at some point, I, a part of him wanted to tell his story. He's got a remarkable story, and again, even if he had never traded uh, a, a, a single equity or, or or bond or commodity contract he'd still be worthy of a book in my eyes he's got he's got led a really interesting life just in terms of his accomplishments in mathematics he was a code breaker he's trying to cure autism today he's trying to figure out the origins of life he's a big big political uh involvement he's an interesting guy so i think part of him most of him didn't want to speak and even as a as of a few months months ago he said he, he doesn't want the book coming out but part of him must have really also wanted to share some of his uh, accomplishments and perspective. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that because, uh, yeah, that's what you said in the beginning of the book is that he asked you not to publish this or to, to go ahead with the book and put it out. I mean, how do you feel about that? Does it put you in a bit of an awkward position? As a writer, if you're told not to write something, it's a little bit akin to a a young person, you know, told not to touch a stove, you kind of want to touch it a little bit more. So um, I am not out to make friends. I'm out to tell an accurate story. So the fact that Jim didn't want me to write his story on a personal level, I, I, I felt a little bad for him, I guess. But my job is to deliver for my readers. So my audience I, I care about foremost, and I needed it to be accurate, and they deserve to hear his story. I mean, these aren't state secrets at the end of the day. Um, I'm not jeopardizing the nation's security. So these people, they take themselves quite seriously, and they have accomplished a lot. But let's be honest here, they are trading stocks and other kind of investments. So the fact that uh, Jim didn't want me to write the book, um, he's a very nice guy and a generous individual. So I, you know, I, I feel for him to some extent, but you can't trade in the size that he does and his colleagues do, and you can't manage money for institutions and others as they have over the past decade or so. Obviously, the medallion fund is, is for their own money, but now they take outside money, and you, so you can't take outside money and expect not some, some level of scrutiny. So that's my job. Sure, that makes sense. I understand where you're coming from there. Let's hear a little bit about Jim's life prior to Renaissance. As you've already mentioned, he led quite an outstanding life even before uh, he went full-time into trading. You know, he had a pretty uh, accomplished academic career. So, yeah, just tell us a little bit about life before Renaissance. Sure. So, Jim Simons is someone, an individual who is um, um, especially smart, mathematically inclined. He did um, MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the top undergraduate programs. He did that in three years. He um, got his PhD from a top school, began teaching. He taught at both um, 
MIT and then later at Harvard and um, was popular and respected and was on his way to a career in academia, but he always had sort of this outside interest and he's a really unique guy and an individual and we can all in some ways learn from him, but it's hard to emulate him because he has talents sort of in both worlds, the, the quantitative world, the, the mathematic world. He is as accomplished as, as anybody. He was a geometer and his accomplishments really did rival almost anybody in that world. But he also had the talent, has the talent of dealing with people and interacting people. He, um, so early on, and he's got a sense, an interest in business. Not so, he didn't really have an interest in trading until he played with his money he played with some of the money he got from his uh, wedding, his wedding uh, gifts. But then he gave that up. He couldn't do both. It was difficult to really pull off both. So he really focused on academia. But he always had this pull that very few other people in that world, in the world of mathematics, the world of academia, had. And he had a pull to make money. And it's really this like unvarnished uh, appetite for wealth. And some people close to him thought he wanted the money, the wealth to, to be able to change the world. And later he uh, has been able to do that a little bit in terms of politics and philanthropy. But um, others just didn't understand that drive and really couldn't figure out why he had, had that interest in making money, but he really did. Um, so he had these two interests. He had this interest in academia and mathematics. And again, his uh, he, he, he won awards that um, the, the Oswald um, um, Veblen Prize in Geometry, which is uh, the top. He eventually was elected National Academy of Sciences. So he, he rivaled almost anybody in that world, in the world of geometry. Um, and they're, they're, still, um, they're still citing him. Um, Chern Simons uh, is an accomplishment which uh, very few people can match. Um, it's, he, he did work with uh, uh, Xingshan Chern and it's something called the theory of characteristic classes, and 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 Chern Simons uh, is a theory that is cited over and over again in academic papers to to this day. So um, again, these these it had an impact in physics that he didn't realize it would have, but it did. But so his accomplishments were pretty remarkable. But he always had this pull, always had this interest, making money, trying to figure out ways to trade on the side. He'd get distracted. He'd come back. So I find it kind of fascinating that he had one foot, and he kind of acknowledges as, as much, sort of had one foot in both worlds, and then eventually got into code breaking. We can talk about that as well. Okay. Yeah, sure. Let's, let's hear a little bit about that, because that's quite a significant part. Sure. So he, in the early 60s, was, again, teaching at Harvard, and was a little bit unhappy, wasn't making enough money, had these debts that had piled up. He and his father had uh, borrowed money to invest in a business in uh, South America, which was doing okay, but it, 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 it wasn't really thriving, so they needed to pay down their debts. Um, he was teaching extra courses on the side to make money, but uh, he had this focus on getting wealthy, and first, his initial focus was just paying down his debts. So he had an opportunity to go work for a division of the National Security Agency in 1964. He went and did that. And for four years, he was on the staff of something called the, the CRD, the Communications Research Division. It's a division of the Institute for Defense Analyses. Um, basically, it's connected with Princeton, and they do work for the government. And what they were trying to do at the time was 
break Soviet code. And um, it was challenging. It was, they were going through a difficult po- period of the time where they hadn't been able to really um, break code. And he was a, a tremendous success there and he rose the ranks. And um, th- he could have run the whole thing, but he found himself on the outs. He had spoken out about Vietnam and he did it in a public way. He wrote an article, he wrote a letter in the New York Times. And his superiors weren't thrilled with that. So eventually he lost that job. Quite an opinionated, interesting person and underscores that theme. So originally he was academic. He goes and breaks code for the, the government, the United States government, and the Russians. is quite successful, but loses that job. And then he begins a, a different job, a position running a mathematics department um, at Stony Brook, uh, Stony Brook University. And, and that was in 1968. And each step along the way, he developed new skills. So at, and when he's working for the government, he just, he figured out, he learned, he was really educated in creating algorithms and that's how they broke code. Um, they used mathematical models for the first time. He, he learned how to do that. Again, that kind of led to his, his future success. And what happened at Stony Brook university was he, he led this department that really was struggling. No one really had heard about the school and he built it up and he did that by finding and wooing and luring talent, talented individuals to come and work for the school. And again, those were new skills and new talents that he had to develop. And it's, it really um, set the groundwork for his eventual firm because uh, his firm, um, I, I'll talk about how, how he went and, and started to tra- trade full time, but eventually he was somebody who hired the best talent from all over the country and convinced them to leave sometimes cushy jobs, sometimes really respected positions in academia and elsewhere to go take a chance on this firm he started called Renaissance Technologies. So each step along the way in academia, code breaking, uh, mathematics, he developed skills that eventually led to his success. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, one of the things you highlighted a couple times there was he had a pretty strong motivation to become wealthy. You also mentioned that he had you know, borrowed some money and he wasn't sort of happy with the money he was making. What was his financial situation like during this period in his life? And I, I just think that's an interesting question to ask because we know Jim Simons today is worth 20 something billion dollars, but where did he actually start out from? Like what was his financial situation like before Renaissance came into the picture? Sure. So he was uh, born uh, and lived outside Boston in the city of Newton, and he was firmly middle class. His father was someone who uh, worked in a shoe factory. It was his grandfather's, Jim Simon's grandfather's 
shoe factory. Jim Summon's father went and worked uh, in the family business. It was his father-in-law's business and was always a little bit um, disappointed in his life. This is Jim Simon's father. I'm talking about Maddie. He had opportunities elsewhere. He was in the film industry for a little while. It was a thriving, growing industry, and he was loving it. And due to family obligations, he felt compelled to go and work for his father-in-law in the shoe business. And he thought he was going to get equity and he never got the equity. And he basically, uh, that was a lesson that Jim Simons learned that you should follow what, your, your passion. And um, he, he decided when it comes, comes to my own life, Jim Simon says, I'm going to do what I love. And it, what he loved was mathematics. And again, he was middle-class, the, the factory, the family factory was successful, but not, not tremendously so. And then he went into academia and he was like any other academic, um, got paid like an academic. Uh, when he works for the government, he's a little bit better, but we're not talking about wealth whatsoever. And, uh, he did have this hunger, this real desire. So people think of Jim Simons as this remarkable success and he is, but I don't think people pay enough attention or are aware. And I spent a lot of time in my book focusing on how much he overcame and how he struggled for years. I mean, until past his 40 40th birthday, he still hadn't figured out, couldn't really understand how to trade, how to make good money. He was still investing like a macro kind of tourist, using his instincts and intuition and reading the news and, and trading off that. Even though he's a mathematician, it took a while for him to become a quant and to model and to, to use algorithms. So it's, it's sort of a lesson of both the importance of resilience and having confidence in oneself, but also how difficult it is to be a quant. Yeah, that's one of the things which I find so fascinating about Jim is that he didn't completely focus his attention on trading. Like he didn't go full time into trading until he was like 40 years old. I mean, when you think about Jim and, and how much he's accomplished, know that he, he didn't start until he was 40. It's, it's quite amazing. Yeah, it's funny. I've written, uh, uh, this is my third book, and if, for whatever reason, all those who've accomplished a lot in, in, in my books are people that pa- did it past 50 or 40, and it's a nice reminder that there's uh, greatness ahead. If, if, if you haven't reached it at that age, you, you still can. So when it comes to Jim Simons and I, I write it in the book. He really had um, a series of obstacles and difficulties and could have flamed out a bunch of different places along the way and given up. He really could have given up. And it, it took this resilience and innate confidence in himself and in his colleagues. And he was able to motivate them, hire the right people, keep them focused on the job, figuring out how to solve um, this this challenge, this problem of trading algorithmically and developing the proper model, they eventually did, but it could have gone in another direction. Yeah. Well, let's get into that a bit more about the early days of Renaissance. Like, what were some of the early wins or some of the stumbling blocks which, that you know, they came upon? Um, who were some of the first people that he hired? What were their roles? Like, yeah, I'm just interested to hear a little bit more about the roots, how this started. When Simon started, he decided to become a trader full-time, start a firm to do that. His first hire was a guy named Lenny Baum. He was an American mathematician who was pretty famous in, in various circles of mathematics. He developed uh, the Baum-Welch algorithm, uh, which uh, helps in terms of predictions in various areas. And some people even cite it as uh, part of the reason uh, things like uh, 
Google can operate the way it does and other pr- predictive methods. And he's a guy who went to Harvard and got his PhD from Harvard as well. Uh, he's an interesting guy, gentleman, that they worked together when they were breaking code for the government. So he knew Baum was smart. He knew he was talented. He can, but, but Baum had no interest in trading. And, and, and time after time in my book, Simons will find top scientists, mathematicians, and say, hey, come work for my trading firm. And they have no interest whatsoever. What do I know from trading? Well, I don't care about trading. They don't even, these people don't even hunger for money, really. They're not people that always wanted to be wealthy. And, and Baum was one of them. He was an academic, but it was the challenge. It was the idea of, yes, you've accomplished a lot in academia. See if you can now solve this riddle and the riddle being the market. And, you know, trading is among the most challenging riddles. Uh, there, there's been an existence and that's what captivated Lenny Baum. So Baum got curious about markets and Simon's sparked that curiosity. And together they started building a system and early on it had some success. Um, they called it the, uh, the, the piggy, the piggy model because it bought a lot of hogs they weren't doing equities back then. And for whatever reason, it, it bought a lot of hogs and, uh, at one point, and it was going pretty well, but at one point, um, it, it it was early. You could really see it as an early form of uh, AI, machine learning. It started, the, 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 the model taught itself in some ways, and it started loading up on potatoes. And before they knew it, they had cornered the market on Maine potatoes, potatoes from the state of Maine. And regulators called, and they were upset, and it disrupted the markets. And Simon thought it was kind of humorous. He's a funny guy, actually. And got a good view on, on, on life, but the regulators did not see it, any humor in there. So they, they fined him and they lost millions of dollars on the escapade. And eventually both Simons and Lenny Baum just said, you know, enough of these models. It's just not going to work. Let's trade like everybody else. Let's read the news. Let's analyze economic data. They hired this consultant named, uh, this economist named Alan Greenspan, went on to do big things. Um, they tried to get news and react quicker than other people. They were like anybody else. That's the irony. Here's this mathematician, genius, uh, borderline genius kind of geometer. And he was trading like I would, you know, in my basement kind of. Oh, I read a piece of news and some, some politician made an announcement. So I'm going to go quickly buy or sell. And, you know, they made a lot of money. They lost a lot of money. Net, net, they actually did quite well. Lenny Baum, though, became a little headstrong and determined and and stubborn. And he and Simon sort of did their own trading, had their own accounts, um, and eventually had a falling out. And net, net, they made money, but it was just too hard emotionally on Simon's, and he couldn't take it. He's like, I can't trade this way anymore. Maybe I'll make money, but emotionally, I can't handle the ups and downs and feeling like an idiot one day and on top of the world the next. And Physically, he had some issues with his stomach back in college, I write about in the book, and they were recurring now. So he had to find a different approach. And to do so, he brought in a different academic who he had come across. Again, he had the advantage of dealing with um, real superstars when it comes to the world of mathematics. And so he brought in a different individual named Jim Axe, another American mathematician. He was he he did some groundbreaking work in terms of algebra and numbers theory um he won the cole prize in number theory which is uh one of the top prizes in that area and once again had no interest in trading or investing until simons 
told him about it and, and kind of put the challenge to him and Axe left academia. Uh, he was at Stony Brook and joined Simon's firm. And once again, it worked for a while and they did algorithmic trading, but they developed a, a, some computerized models and Simon wanted it to be automated. To some, we're talking this, we're, now we're in, in, in the 70s, the 1970s at, at this point and early 80s. And, and then until like sort of the late 80s, they, 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 tried, they, make, they tried to work on it. And eventually he's a real character and a fascinating individual in his own right, Jim Max. And he moved out to California and wanted to get away from people and brought part of the firm there. And they struggled and, and made some money, lost some money. Eventually, they had a falling out. So there he was, Jim Simons in 1987. Didn't really have much hope for his firm. He hadn't, hadn't worked with a couple of the superstar academics. So he didn't have any reason to think it would work going forward. But he brought in a different individual named Elwin Burlakamp, who managed to help turn this thing around. And while my book is really about Jim Simons is just as much about the people around him, the people who worked there, the people he dealt with, colleagues, uh, staff members, and others who, in their own right, are, I, I found the one thing that I found uh, surprising is how many of them are just fascinating, accomplished characters in their own right. So I was very lucky as a writer that it wasn't just a book about Jim Simons, uh, it was about these other real colorful oddballs uh, in their own right. And so it sounds like there was a lot of up and downs to this point. Was there, like, is there something you can pinpoint, like a key turning point that turned Renaissance around and sort of put it on the trajectory to be the superstar fund that it's become? Yeah, it was the shift by Burlakamp at the helm. Simons was always sort of around helping, dealing with investors, giving guidance, hiring, making some key decisions. But he was also doing things like venture capital, and that's why they call it Renaissance Technologies. He had some interests in different businesses, and he's one of these guys with a lot of different interests in life. So he was focused on his firm, but he had other things going on too. And he would hire people to help run the firm and step in and guide them, but he was off doing other things. So I really did give a lot of credit to a mathematician named Erlen, uh, Elwin Burlakamp, who was known for his work in computer science and coding theory and combinatorial game theory. Again, pretty well-known person in those areas of mathemat mathematics. And he's a guy who just doesn't even didn't even trust. He, he, he died last year, unfortunately, but I had um, the, the privilege of spending a lot of time with him. He's a guy who doesn't even trust financial markets, not even sure he believes in capitalism. He um, <laughs> thinks that markets are kind of rigged and he's suspicious of them. And yet Simons got him to leave academia to try to figure out what to do, how to turn around their key hedge fund, which was called Medallion at the time. And it was a shift. The turning point was in 1988 or so, and it was a shift to shorter term trading. And the idea that it's just too hard to make these large outside bets, outside bets that some kinds can go right, some kinds can go wrong, but when they go wrong, they can really sink you. And they decided to turn their firm into something of a, of a casino where if you can get it right most of the time, even if it's just 50 or 51 or 52% of the time, that's enough if you trade frequently enough. And it's not to say they don't do longer trading, 
but on average, back then, and it's continued today, they hold investments, their positions for about two days on average. Sometimes they get confused with these flash traders and um, high frequency. They're not high frequency, they're medium frequency. And that all changed in uh, 88 when Burlakamp started running the firm. He only did it for a year. He got in a fight with Simons, like a lot of all these other people I write about <laughs> in my book. And he said, I'm going back to academia. And quite frankly, Burlakamp and the others who left they didn't think that Simons and Medallion and Renaissance would go on to make history. They thought it was a successful firm and maybe would go on to be profitable. But no one had a clue that Simons could keep improving things. And that's pretty starting start. That was startling to me as well. I mean, these were people who could have stayed or kept their interest or fought to keep an interest in Medallion. And they did well enough and they left and they made their millions. But they didn't suspect that medallion could be what it was. I mean, Burlakamp had a fight with Simons at one point. He said, because Simons said, I think we can make, I think it was 80% a year. And Burlakamp said, come on, there's no way we can do that, Jim. That's preposterous. And they, they, he left. And Simon said, you know what? I'm going to run this place. And the rest is history. Let me ask you just a real quick question. How long was it until Jim made his first billion dollars? That's a good question. So their turning point was in 1988, and they started, they were small. For years, they were small. They couldn't get much backing from investors, even though quants were just getting going. Some firms like D.E. Shaw, 1989. 1990, Simons couldn't get many people to back him, institutional investors or others. I describe a scene where Donald Sussman, who, who was one of the backers of D.E. Shaw and a super smart guy in his own right, uh, Simons came to Sussman asking for money for the firm. And Sussman liked Simons and thought he might be successful, but didn't have an interest in investing. He was already backing D. Shaw when it worked out. So for a while, Jim and his colleagues didn't invest much money, so they couldn't make that much. Um, and then the turning point was sort of when they got into equities and that and, and figured out equities. It took them years to figure out equities. But there's a cap in terms of how much in AUM you can have. See, I can say AUM for your audience. Most people, I can't <laughs> say AUM. So there's a cap when it comes to the, the, the futures world and commodities and, and, and bonds and currencies. There's just so much. These are some of those uh, corners of those markets are just too small. You can't manage tens of billions. And that's what Simons wanted to do because, again, he wanted huge wealth. He wanted to become the guy who solved the market. And you couldn't really do that just by managing uh, uh, commodities and such. So equity was, was the key, and it took them years to do it. But they finally turned the corner in 1996 and started allocating much more to, to their, their fund, but also to equities. And then that was really the turning. That, that, that's when huge wealth, wealth started piling up for Simons in the late 90s. Right, right. Okay. Now, you said just before, and I'd love to go on this a little bit more if we could, uh, you spoke about uh, they often get confused as like a, a fund that just does high frequency trading. Uh, you know, in and out without in, in seconds and minutes, etc. But you said that they they tend to hold most positions for an average of two days, um, and a, could be described as a medium frequency operation. 
So, I mean, can you give a little more insight? And this is obviously what everyone wants to know. A little more insight to the strategies that they are running and, you know, their, their actual approach to the market. Sure. So what they do today, and although we're fast forwarding to today, it's not dissimilar from what they did even a decade ago. So it's okay to discuss it. They've built on what the accomplishments of a decade or so ago, and I write about it in the book, but the principles and the approach are similar. They do fast trading, but it's not super fast. And it's not for lack of trying. They actually looked into being a fast trading and high frequency, and it didn't work. And the irony is, you know, you think of Jim Simons, uh, and they are cutting edge in a lot of ways. But when it comes to technology, if not, they're not the most sophisticated firm, believe it or not. People internally kind of joke about it. Yeah, they're high powered and they've got great technology and computers, etc. But there are firms with much more power. And they looked at high frequency stuff and they they're not one of these people that can do it millisecond type trades. They look for patterns in the market. Everything is about um, past patterns that might repeat. And these are all based on relationships among equities. Yes, they still do bonds and, and debt investments and commodities, and they make money there. But the bulk of their it, uh, profits come from equities. And the way they invest is they hold 4,000 or so stocks long, and they're 4,000 or so short. So it's a version of statistical arbitrage and pairs trading, but much, much more sophisticated. That's really a, just a simplistic way to, to look at it. These are trades that, yeah, as I said, they, they average a holding period of about two days. They do trade much more frequently, um, but that's usually when they're establishing positions or getting out of positions. So they'll do rapid fire trades to put on a trade, they'll break up the trade. So that will seem like they're really rapid fire, high frequency type operation. But those are, again, just, just getting into positions. And yeah, some are a little bit longer. They'll do minutes to, to months is the way they describe it. But on average, it's about two days. And what they've discovered are relationships among equities and they'll trade they're never looking they're never outright betting on a stock or even a group of stocks to go up or down it's all groups of individual stocks and larger um, um, segments of, of, of the market in relation to each other in relation to an index in relation to a factor um, it's pretty sophisticated stuff and they increasingly it's become much more sophisticated so it's not like they've discovered, okay, every Tuesday morning at, at 10 a.m., the market always goes up. People always think of it that way. It's not like that. There are principles that they've discovered, and they're all based on um, historic patterns uh, of the market. But the, the one takeaway, one of the, one of the, the many takeaways uh, in the book is that we are just not aware of all the factors affecting the market that we should be. And they have a sense that there are more that are just not, we just can't see. I liken it to sort of a bee that looking at a flower can just see many more um, hues than you and I can just looking at that same flower. They're that bee. They can see other things affecting markets and um, they trade on them, but they have so many more advantages that it's not just about 
where things are going. They've got much better system of evaluating their impact on the market. They've got a much, much better system of, of evaluating their risk. They know when to put on leverage. They've got the ability to put on lots of leverage that other people don't have, and they can do it in moments where they have more opportunity. Um, they hire much better talent, partly because they're a renaissance, partly because they come from the world of academia. They know who the talent is. They're talking superstars. Every firm nowadays says, oh, yeah, we've got you know, PhDs. But it's not just a question of PhDs. These are people who dominated their fields, be it physics, be it uh, astronomy. And they also have this real emphasis on data that needs to be discussed. They were pouring through. They were collecting data much earlier than anybody else. I sort of liken it to the amount of data they have is comparable to, let's say, uh, let's say I were to say to you, okay, how, how long would it take you to start a library, like a local library? Well, you know, I don't know, a few months maybe to get a decent library going on your corner kind of thing, getting enough books, et cetera. But what if I were to say to you, okay, now build me the United States Library of Congress, the Smithsonian Museum. In other words, artifacts, historic um, artifacts that no one can get their hands on, and they've got that data. It goes back to the 1700s and 1800s, and they don't usually use this data, frankly. It's, sometimes it's, though they can, they're curious, they check it out, they compare stuff, but basically they're looking for patterns, and we as investors, we repeat our behavior is one of the conclusions uh, from the Renaissance and Jim Simon's experience, and they're better able to, than others to identify these patterns that sometimes the average person or most of the times can't really pick up on. You mentioned data there. What was perhaps some of the most obscure uh, data sets that you, you heard that they were collecting? The data they collect, it's not so much, they started off with pricing data and they had it before others. It's more sophisticated, it's more detailed, and it goes back much, much, much further. But they also early on began developing and collecting a database that includes other kinds of data. And it includes everything, everything you can imagine they've purchased and they've scrutinized. And that's weather patterns, that's all kinds of economic data, behavior, shipping, uh, et cetera. Anything you can imagine they've got and they've poured through and they've figured out. And it's not even so much that they have better than others, but they've been scrutinizing it for longer, and they have a better ways of of looking for for um, different patterns. So it's better data. It's older. It's more sophisticated. But they've also been dealing with it much, much longer. Did you hear about any areas of mathematic uh, mathematics? <laughs> I can't even say the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear about any areas of mathematics or specific methods of modeling which are commonly being used inside of Renaissance? Uh, I think Markov models is maybe something that gets mentioned a little bit in the book. Um, you know, may, maybe that's it, or is there something else which um, you heard popping up a few times? So the math they use uh, is sophisticated, and it's it's not uh, what an, an average investor would use, but other quants share some of these approaches, things like, uh, um, as you said, Markov models, but also the kernel method is a, it's a, it's a, it's an approach to, um, 
uh, AI and, and, and that, um, and they were doing that early on. So you do have to give them credit for there in, in that regard. Um, they weren't doing simple regressions. Um, they were doing more sophisticated, uh, approaches. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's sophisticated stuff, but it's, it's early, it's earlier than other people in terms of things like, uh, again, the kernel method, uh, which is a, you know, a class of algorithms for, for pattern analysis. So they were doing that, but I have to emphasize that people don't, don't recognize, I don't think that it's how they manage as much as anything else and how Jim Simons manages. So it's not so much his genius, I, I like to say, and I think I even quote someone in my book saying that's someone who works with Sam, with Jim, it's how he manages genius. So he incentivizes people, gets them on the same page like no one else. He's really a, a management marvel in some ways. He's a rare breed, sort of this world-class mathematician who, who learned early on how to recruit and manage star scientists and mathematicians. And few quants share this ability to motivate employees, keep them on the same page. So it's his ability to manage genius as much as his genius itself. He, he, he attracts top talent. Few people defect. He's got this open architecture. Um, they, they share work like nowhere else. They've got one model. Anybody in the firm can see the code. There aren't corners of the code that are available only to the most senior people like some tech firms and others. There's, no, there's only one model, unlike some, some firms. They all share. They all can work. They could, all can pick apart, and they're encouraged to pick about each other's work, and, and they can see each other's work. And that open architecture, I think, is a, a huge advantage. Um, so because they don't lose as many people as others, they make a lot of money. They've got these, they've got these documents, these non-compete documents, and others. So they don't fear the loss of talent and the loss of intellectual property like other firms. And as a result, they can share more than others. They're less fearful that employees are going to leave for rivals. So they embrace this open architecture and even allow you know, junior employees to see every line of code, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What you're talking about here is it's quite insightful. It's very interesting as well. Um, and you know, it's, it's a little bit surprising that um, you were able to kind of get this information as well as Renaissance is so renowned for their secrecy. Was there anything that you uncovered that surprised you or you didn't expect to discover? So I was surprised that I eventually could explain to the reader some key breakthroughs, how Bob Mercer and Peter Brown figured out equities. They had some stumbling blocks and they were able to figure that out. Um, I think I outlined for the reader, I tell the story of how they um, had approaches that really others couldn't match or haven't been able to match yet. Um, some nuances, how they do things like hiding their signals and trade in the market uh, in a way that people can't pick up on, little nuances. So there's no, I, I guess I did come into the project thinking, wow, there's this one huge secret that I'm hopefully going to find. And for a while, it kept me up at night. God, what, what is that secret? What is that one secret that Jim Simons knows that no one else knows? Again, maybe it's, you know, at four o'clock on every Wednesday, there's an order that he places. That, it, there's nothing like that. It's a, it's a collection of a good 20 or 25 
secrets, I would say. And it's things like keeping a cap on the fund. Um, they have limited competition. They've got these great cost, risk, and impact models. It's having this collaborative culture. Um, stuff they, that I, I thought I hadn't really focused on that kind of stuff. But there are nuances to how they trade and how they find signals and the fact that they don't mind non-intuitive signals. They, they'll, they will trade, and it's not true of places like Two Sigma and some other big quant firms. They will trade signals that don't make any sense whatsoever. And you do worry about that as a trader. Um, um, most, again, most rivals won't do that. And, but they are scientists, and if they fi- decide that there's a, um, enough of a, a convincing um, data they're scientists. It's, 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 the story really, in some ways, is a, is, is a reminder of the importance of the scientific method and not letting store, not getting carried away with stories. And you see it time and time again. Investors make that mistake. You look at what's happened with, with WeWork. You look at what happened with um, Uber, um, with, 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 with company after company where it's a story and you get carried away, even sophisticated investors get carried away with the story, Theranos, et cetera. You look at the president of the United States, it's all about instinct and intuition and, and gut and the Federal Reserve to some extent too. It, it's ironic to me and almost sad that some of the biggest and most important decisions in the world get made are, are made based on intuition and research and I've become much more of a subscriber to the view that you need to embrace the scientific approach, testing, using data, not being swayed by your intuition and your your instincts. And it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, I tell a story. You talk about what's surprising to me. One of the most surprising things to me was learning that last year, at the end of last year, Jim Simons panicked. And the market was going down, if you remember, end of 2018, um, the market was going down and Jim Simons was on vacation on his super yacht somewhere. And he started panicking about the market and it, because he's got a lot of money still in the market and he's got a huge family office and he has these huge philanthropic commitments. He's got one of the biggest foundations in the world and they've got huge ambitions. So the market was, was tumbling. Jim Simons picks up the phone. He calls his financial advisor. We should put on some, some, a short here. We, we should get some, 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 some protection. And his advisor says, well, Jim, you know, maybe let's wait. A here he is, Jim Simons, the quant of all quants, the hero in the quant world. And he wasn't using quantitative analysis. He was investing like he had back in the 80s, using his intuition and instinct and, and emotion. And that's and he's the one who takes advantage of emotion. He and his his colleagues are trained to do so. So it's hard to be a quant. It's really hard, even for quants. And in the end, he didn't panic and it all worked out fine. But I was just struck by if Jim Simons can panic, then who 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 isn't? Um, liable to panic and, and have fear. And it's important to just remember to stick with the model and with the data and with the scientific approach. And it's hard. Yeah, we all have uh, moments of vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, even Jim Simons. Yeah, yeah, that's saying something. Um, what's Jim's level of involvement in Renaissance today? 
So it's a fascinating thing that he makes about a billion dollars a year, a billion and a half, give or take, you know, 100 million here, 100 million there. And he hardly ever goes in the office. It's pretty good, pretty cushy position there where you don't even have to go into the office and you make a billion and a half dollars. So he's still in touch with them. And he, from a management perspective, he's the one who ousted Bob Mercer. Bob Mercer was the co-CEO and was doing a really great job and an interesting character in his own right. He became involved in politics. He helped put Donald Trump in office. And Jim Simons is a left-leaning guy. He was uh, the third biggest supporter of Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential campaign. And, and yet he liked Bob Mercer on a personal level. And he liked him also because Bob Mercer was very successful and he made Jim Simons a lot of money. So Simons was really torn what to do. And you can't fire someone for their politics, he decided, and he didn't. But eventually, he became such a divisive character within the firm. I'm talking about Bob Mercer, and I write about it in the book, that morale was being impacted, and Simons had to step in. So he had a tough conversation with Bob Mercer and forced Mercer to step down. He's still there, but he's not running things. So Simons will get involved with those kind of bigger decisions, but in terms of day-to-day, Simons is really focused on philanthropy and trying to change the world uh, while cashing his checks. That's something I wanted to ask you. You know, as we spoke about earlier on in this conversation, Jim was someone who, you know, had a drive to become very wealthy and he became outrageously wealthy. What's he done with his money? What does he do with it? So Jim Simons runs one of the largest foundations in the United States, charitable foundations, and he does a lot of interesting things with that money. Um, he subsidizes every public school teacher in math and science in the in New York State. And he does that with about $10,000 each. And he does that so that they'll stay as teachers. He believes in the importance of math and science, and he thinks we've lost too many people from that world to private industry. As I kind of point out in the book, um, Simons and, and Renaissance are among those who do that hiring. And so he has himself to blame. But he wants there to be more better teaching of math and science, so he subsidizes all these public school teachers with considerable amount of money. He is at the forefront of autism research. He's got um, dozens and dozens of scientists he funds to make progress, and there are some drugs in the pipeline, hopefully they're successful, that will help those with autism. Uh, he funds research on the beginning of life and how this universe began, the first few moments and whether the Big Bang uh, was was truly how things began or not. Um, he does um, all, all the kind of scientific and healthcare-related research, uh, Math for America, which um, tries to encourage mathematics education in the United States, um, Stony Brook University, education, etc. So he does a lot of really good things with his money. Also... You know, we, we speak about Jim Simons making a lot of money from Renaissance. Obviously, there were other people uh, involved in some of them we've spoken about. Who else made a lot of money from uh, this venture? Like, and how, how does their wealth compare to Jim's? People don't really focus on it, but the average individual there, the average researcher, they just call them all researchers, or maybe they're on the other side of the business, elsewhere in the business, is pretty darn wealthy in their own right. So a guy like David Magerman, who I write about in my book, who spent a good decade or so at the firm and was senior, 
but he wasn't the most senior person. Uh, when he left the firm, he had enough money to become one of the largest philanthropists in his own local community. He's probably worth a good 50 to $100 million. And again, this is somebody who was senior and important and made contributions, but never ran the firm, wasn't a top you know, five people at the firm. So there's a remarkable amount of wealth there. And increasingly, you're seeing the impact in various areas, be it in philanthropy or, or uh, elsewhere, of secondary type people. And the people who run the firm have a lot of impact. So Bob Mercer, who was the CEO, co-CEO for a number of years, and is a billionaire in his own right, he uh, it was the top supporter, financial supporter for Donald Trump. He got involved with conservative causes. He's, he helped in terms of making uh, Brexit a reality. He was the person who put Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon in the Trump campaign, stabilizing it in a really difficult uh, tumultuous period in the Trump campaign. And one can argue that there's really no one more important than Bob Mercer in terms of putting Donald Trump in the White House. So you're seeing an impact from these different characters within Renaissance. So it's not just Jim Simons. Uh, this might be a little bit controversial, but what do you know about Jim Simons and uh, the Paradise Papers League? I read something when I was doing a little bit of uh, prep for. Uh, uh, this discussion that we're having here, and it went something along the lines of his act, his net worth had been reported in Forbes. Uh, I'm not sure what year this was, maybe early 2000s, as being a certain amount. I think it was around about eight billion dollars at the time. Uh, and then this Paradise Papers leak came out, and it turns out he's got another eight billion dollars or so. Uh, in a tax haven offshore uh, in Bermuda. I don't know how much truth is in that, but what do you know about um, yeah, the Paradise Papers and Jim Simons? So the Paradise Papers reveal that Simons is wealthier than most people assumed. I add up all his money at being uh, $23 billion. I'm very comfortable and confident of that number. And in terms of the Paradise Papers and the offshore money, he has a lot of money offshore, but he's not the only one. And frankly, I didn't find anything nefarious about it. Uh, did he take advantage of, of tax uh, benefits? For sure. But there's nothing nefarious. It's, and frankly, almost all that money offshore is going to go into his foundation at some point. It's dedicated to his foundation. So at some point, it will be given away. I do write in the book about their use of, of really um, aggressive tactics to convert short-term profits to long-term profits, and thereby avoiding billions, billions and billions of dollars of taxes, both the firm and the individuals themselves. And I think they're going to lose this case. So the, the United States eventually found out about it and is challenging their use of these, um, these stratagems. And I think Renaissance and Simons are going to lose this case. They're going to have to write checks for billions of dollars. I mean, Simons will still be worth tens of billions of dollars, but I think they're going to lose that case. So yeah, I do fault them, or at least I critique them for converting. I mean, here he is. Simons talks about how um, the government people don't support the government perhaps enough. He's left-leaning. He um, believes maybe taxes should go a little bit higher. And yet he and his firm were so aggressive in avoiding tax payments. So one can fault him in that regard. But generally speaking, the offshore money, I didn't find really that troubling. Yeah, I just thought that was incredible that he'd been quoted in Forbes as being worth however much, and then all of a sudden it, it 
it comes out that he's also got, you know, another $8 billion or whatever it is uh, offshore and his actual net worth is like double what everyone thought it was, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Then there was a time when uh, someone was cleaning his couch and they found a couple hundred million dollars in the the corner there too. Yeah. The guy's really wealthy, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) he he doesn't, it's different than you and I, but right. For years, people internally kind of giggled about how little Forbes listed him uh, each year. And people internally, too, there are other people, Henry Alfred and talk about Bob Mercer, Peter Brown. They were all billionaires. And yet it was hard for Forbes and other people to realize this is the most secretive firm. And a group of individuals were just secretive, unlike anybody else. So that's kind of why I wanted to do this book, shed some light on them, explain how they made their wealth. Maybe we can learn from them or just be entertained by their exploits. Yeah. Well, I got to say, on a personal level, I, I appreciate you for writing this book. I mean, I was I was pleasantly surprised to hear that there was a book coming out about Jim's story because, um, you know, if there's any trader I'd love to learn more about, it's it's Jim Simons. I mean, it's he, he's kind of the pinnacle of, of trading success. Yeah, massive undertaking from you, and you've done a really great job of the book. I'm only partway through it, but um, I'll certainly be finishing this one. <laughs> it was the most difficult project. I've ever undertaken. I um, would do these late night um, sessions, typing and trying to figure out and understand. And there were a couple of times when I heard some noise upstairs. I, I worked down in my basement and um, I said, oh, my kids left the TV on again. I got to go turn it off. And I go upstairs and there's no TV on. And I realized it's the birds getting up in the morning. So I just said, just work through the night. And I needed to because they were, it, it, was a, it was difficult to get information from these people, but it was also difficult to understand it and to make it comprehensible to people and to write it in the form of a, of a narrative. And, but I, I thought it was a compelling story here, um, tale, and I wanted to be the one to do it, so I kept working on it. Yeah. No, that's incredible, man. I'm, I'm glad you've done it. Thank you. Anyone who's listening to this podcast, uh, if you want to get a copy of Greg's book, uh, you can go to chatwithtraders.com slash Simons. That'll redirect you to it on Amazon. I've, I've set up that link. Uh, chatwithtraders.com slash Simons. And the book is titled The Man Who Solved the Market. Uh, Greg, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Thank you very much. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.